welcome back everybody to part one of the four wins by Kristen Hanna. And like I said last week, I'm actually going to be splitting the deep dive into two different episodes because of how long the book is. She has so much meat to her books, so I really didn't want to leave anything out. And I wanted to put as much content as I could in so that you guys can really connect through this podcast with Elsa and her family. So for part one, we're going to do the years 1921 to 1934. So the book opens up in 1921, and we meet Elsa Wolcott. She is living in Dalhart, Texas with her family. She's the oldest of three girls. She's 25, unmarried, and living in her family home. She's the black sheep of her family, and she truly feels like she doesn't fit in, not just with her family, but the world that she's living in. At a young age, she survived the rheumatic fever, which took her out of school and limited her contact with other people, and it kind of made her family treat her with, like, kid gloves, because any time that you know, she got sick or didn't feel well. They literally just thought that she was going to like gonna fall over and die. So not having gone to school and then also have her family treat her so weird, like she just feels extremely rejected. And that is something that is so deeply hurtful to her. It makes her yearn for a different life. But being 25 and unmarried, her options are basically all dried up. During this time, you are supposed to get married like before you're 20 years old. So she's labeled as a spinster, which, like, fucking yikes. Thank the Lord I did not grow up in 1921 because I'm over here, I'm 33, I'm single, and it's just me and my dog. Lord knows what they would have labeled me as. The dried-up old witch, like, down the street that casts spells? I don't know. I don't know. So I really, I feel for Elsa on this front of not being married She describes herself as unattractive and awkward. She says she's too tall, too skinny, too pale, too boring. Her hair's like straw. And it's just like all of this just makes her feel like she is not pretty. And that really makes me sad. She's obviously living in this environment where she is unloved and it's causing her not to love herself. And the way that she described herself 100% makes me think like Elsa is a bombshell and also like tall, skinny, blonde hair. Her name's Elsa. It's Frozen, right? Like it's, we're talking about Elsa from Frozen, right? No? I mean, yeah, the name is the same, obviously, but Frozen Elsa also has white hair, also is dreaming about going somewhere else to be herself. So it's like, there's a lot of parallels there for me. So drinking game alert. Anytime you think of Frozen during this episode or while reading the book, you got to drink. Now, there's really no way for me to monitor that or tell you how many times you should drink. So just use your best judgment of how much alcohol you feel like you should be putting in your body. Um, My discretion about how much alcohol I put in my body probably is a little bit higher than it should be. All right. All right. All right. So back to our story. So we got Elsa living at home. Both of her sisters are married. She feels like she's failed in some way because she's not. Um, But she has all of these dreams of, you know, having a family and having a home, having a husband, because she thinks that that's how she's going to find love and find a life that's worth living. And we get this scene where her whole family is coming back home from a night out where they left Elsa at home alone, uninvited. And she works up the courage to ask her dad, hey, can I go to college in Chicago and become a writer? I'm obviously single. 
not much is here for me, so like, just let me go. You guys don't even like me. They all laugh her out of the room, which is definitely a sign of the times, but it's also a sign that her family is a bunch of assholes. The turning point in Elsa's story happens on her birthday. Because, again, her fam is a bunch of a-holes, she decides that she is going to spend her birthday at the library alone. On her way to the library, she actually runs into this local general store owner. And he's like, yo, tell your sisters I have this really pretty silk fabric that I think would look great on them. But just for them, definitely not for you. And Elsa's like, nah, bitch, it's my birthday. Let me see what you got. Those were her exact words, by the way. It's written in the book, so don't fact check me. Elsa decides to buy the fabric. And she also sees this, like, bejeweled 20s headband, like, flapper girl headband. And she's like, I'm going to get that, too. I'm going to put it on my fam's account. And, like, yes, girl, go out on your birthday, get you some red silk, and get you a bejeweled headband. And her family is well off. Um, Her dad sells tractors to the farmers of the Great Plains. So I can imagine that business in the 1920s is booming for now. She gets home. She's feeling like a total badass for buying this silk. And the words of her grandpa come back to her. He used to tell her all the time, don't worry about dying, Elsa. Worry about not living. It's like to me that like that hits really hard. I think that's a really great advice. And I think that it's something that we always don't think of um, in our daily lives. And it, it is also really sad because we learned that her grandpa was the only person that really showed her love. And he actually ended up passing away. So she feels even more alone that the one person she felt like in this world loved her is gone. But she feels this rush of life, essentially, And Elsa goes up to her bedroom, she chops off her waist-long blonde hair, and turns it into a bob at her chin. Like, let it go, let it go, and drink. (laughs) Don't judge me for my singing abilities, this is obviously a talking podcast, I know I can't sing, but this girl is chopping off her hair to be a new person. That is Elsa up in her ice castle flinging her hair out in that like nice ass braid you you gotta drink like three times because we talked we just talked about it for like 10 minutes anyway so her mom walks in on her doing this and flips out and they tell elsa she needs to stay in her room until her hair grows back out like what until her chin length bob grows back out down to her waist they're just gonna keep her in her room what the fuck is that about? And like, that's not going to happen. So Elsa's like, okay, fine. I'm going to stay in my room, but I'm also going to take this time to take the red silk that I bought and I'm going to make it into a dress and then I'm going to go dancing. She does exactly that. She makes this cute flapper dress. She pins her hair up. She puts on a little makeup and then she legitimately runs out of the house because her family or the pack of assholes as they're now known chases her out this night has changed her life forever and it's going to change it even more while she doesn't really have anywhere to go in this newly fashioned flapper dress and her newly done up hair there is a local speakeasy and she's like i'm gonna try to get in 
they immediately turn her away like, nah, girl, we know who your dad is. And if we let you in, he would legit kill us. So see you later. So out of options, she decides to turn around and walk back home. But she's going really slow because she knows what waits for her there isn't anything good. While walking back, she actually ends up meeting Raffaello Martinelli. (sighs) I already expressed my love for Italian boys. And she swoons too, and she has it in for the Italian boy too, because he actually notices her and thinks that she's pretty. This shocks her, but they end up having sex in the back of his pickup truck, which is so very awkward, and I think it lasts mere seconds. He's also 18, and she's 25, so it's like, okay, girl, I see you, but, like, maybe find somebody else. And, like, that's the end. He just drops her off, and she goes home. So even more awkward ending. But, like, she also has, like, a little bit of a fire in her because she felt alive for the first time. She's met by her father, who, upon her arrival, slaps her so hard that her face actually bruises. And, like... Oh, man, like, can't she get a break? It really, really hurts Elsa. But she also realizes that it's not enough to dim this fire that's burning inside of her because she did feel alive for the first time ever, and she wants to continue feeling that. So much so that when she sees Rafi at a town 4th of July party and he's with another female, she uses her family's preconceived notion of her being fragile to find a reason to exit said party in hopes that Rafi comes after her, which he does. And they meet up again for some pickup throwdown action. And Rafi tells her, you know, hey, I'm leaving for college in August. So they decide to make a plan to meet up as much as possible before then to have some pickup sex. For Elsa, this is not only a new life that she's experiencing, but she also says, quote, He made me feel more beautiful in one minute than the rest of the world had in 25 years. I think for her, she really sees this as an opportunity to be loved, if only for a little bit. And it just shows like how desperate she is for affection. And not in a bad way, just in a normal human way. She is just dying for somebody to love her. I think she would even settle for somebody liking her at this point. But then, as one does when having unprotected sex, Elsa becomes pregnant. Her parents are pissed. And they basically kick her out, drive her to Rafi's parents' house, and are like, Hey fam, she's your problem now because your son knocked her up see you never. And they just like leave Elsa there and drive away. Elsa's not sad about leaving her parents' place because they suck, but the Martinellis are not pumped to see her at all. We learn that not only is Rafi engaged to somebody else, but he is supposed to be leaving for college in three days. So his parents are like, what the fuck, man? And all Elsa wants to do is like slowly back away and make a run for it. Rose, Rafi's mom, stops her though, and she makes it clear that the baby is their grandchild and they will be there and love that baby, but they will not love Elsa. And honestly, at the point that she's at, that's good enough for her right now. So Rafi's parents 
Tony and Rose take Elsa in, and they plan to help her raise the baby and take her under their wings. They live on a farm, so Elsa needs to learn a lot and get into a routine there, which she does surprisingly easily, given that she's a quote-unquote city girl. She needs to learn how to cook and clean. She also ends up converting to Catholicism, and she does it all, and she doesn't give up trying, which makes Rose soften to her just a little bit. Her relationship with Rafi is awkward, but not non-existent. And then finally, in February, she gives birth to their first child, a baby girl named Loretta. Now, this part of the book actually jumps ahead to 1935. And then we also get a little bit of a switch here. Not only from now on is the book being told in Elsa's perspective, but it also is going to be told in Loretta's perspective. nineteen thirty five is the heart of the Dust Bowl. Rain hasn't fallen in almost three years, and Elsa kind of has settled onto the farm life. She has two kids, Loretta and Anthony, or Aunt as they call him. And she's attempting to navigate this increasingly difficult time, being a mother and being a wife. Rafi is no longer in love with her and is kind of a piece of shit now. Elsa has had to pick him up from the local bar multiple times where he's running up a tab that they can't afford. And meanwhile, they have no money to get clothes for their kids. She can also feel this wedge growing between her and her daughter. And she's not, she's not 100% sure why. She has like a little inkling, but she's not 100% sure why. And this is the first time that we switch into Loretta's perspective. She's 12 now. She loves her father, and she is perpetually angry with her mother. I think most 12-year-old girls are angry with their mothers, but this feels a little different. Her father thinks in the same way that she does. They have these dreams, these really grand dreams. They both want to leave Texas and flee to California. No one else wants to, and Loretta begins to feel stuck in her life, wanting something more, much like her mother once did. But Loretta doesn't know that. She's stuck with her dad in this never-ending cycle of dreams bigger than their lives. When we switch back to Elsa, um, we start to get really a picture of how dire things are inside of this dust bowl. There's barely any food. There's barely any water. There's barely any clothing. So really, all resources are extremely scarce. And on top of it... (laughs) Oh my god. Okay, so on top of it, okay, so on top of it, you guys, I'm having a hard time getting this out because I literally, like, screamed when I read this, so just just bear with me here. Elsa is cleaning the house, and a tarantula the size of an apple appears in their home. A tarantula the size of an apple. So I'm assuming they burned down the house, right? Like, what? The size of an apple? A tarantula? I mean, oh God. So I can't, I cannot with this right now. And I mean, like, Elsa just like shoes it outside with a broom, which is a huge nope for me because I would have to burn down that house and run out of there screaming. So I vote for fire and she's like, just, just go on out, buddy. Hell no. Hell no. There is an Emily-sized shape hole in that house for me running the fuck out of there. 
And if that is not nightmare fuel, this for sure is. A windstorm hits and these are like dust-filled tornadoes meets a hurricane. So not good. But that's not even the nightmare part. While in the midst of securing the house from this dust tornado, Elsa tells us that hundreds, yes, hundreds of centipedes come crawling out of the walls. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so gross. Wait, wait, what the actual fuck is happening here? We have fruit-sized spiders and hundreds of centipedes? Okay, bye. That's a nope from me. Get the fuck out of this house. It, it sounds like a house of horrors, and I hate it so much. But, I mean, I guess that's, that's life living on the plane. Clearly, it is not a life for me. But in all seriousness, this dust storm is nasty. And they can last up for hours to even days. I'll post a picture on Instagram of what one of these look like. And again, it is terrifying. And since the soil is all so loose, it's extremely damaging. Trees, roots, tumbleweeds, dirt, etc. is all flying through the air at an insane velocity. And the earth legitimately starts to crack open. Loretta is actually outside trying to give the animals any water they can and she hears this thunder but she realizes it's not raining so where is it coming from? She walks out and the earth has literally broken open. They are watching the land die right in front of them. That is such a terrifying idea for me. Just the visual of seeing land crack open because it's dying is heartbreaking. So crops won't grow. They can't make any money there. And anything they plant in terms of food is dying. There's really nothing to feed their animals. So they are slowly withering away. And Elsa's doing what she can to provide. But the land is just not providing back. And there's nothing that she can do about that. We learn at one point that after she was married to Rafi, they did try to repair things with her family, but they were turned away. So this farm, this family, is all she has. So she is fighting every day tooth and nail to keep it. More and more people are leaving in search of jobs. They're going to Cali or Seattle. And Loretta's best friend, Stella, her family actually leaves. And this solidifies to Loretta that she needs to leave as well. And she now has this desire to get out more than ever. She knows that her father wants to leave. And so she blames her mother for not having that same idea and the reason that they are stuck where they are. This feeling turns into resentment against her mother. And her feeling of that gets stronger every single day that passes by and they haven't left. She starts to think that her mother is the reason that her father is so unhappy. But, you know, Rafi is just a baby. Like, he got himself into this situation, too. It takes two people to make a baby. And instead of fighting for his family and for his farm, he's giving up and he's putting everything on his wife and his parents. Meanwhile, he's walking around like a child having a temper tantrum and getting drunk at the local bar, spending money that they don't have. 
But Loretta's 12, and she doesn't get that. And the easiest scapegoat that she has is going to be Elsa, because she's so close to her father. Elsa knows Rafi is unhealthy, and she literally feels him slip away. So when he does ask about moving to California again, and just saying, like, let's leave my parents behind, let's start a new life, she resists at first, but then she thinks maybe, like, maybe this move could save our marriage and could give me the life that I've always wanted with him. But again, Rafi is a baby and a deadbeat and a pile of shit. Because instead of having the conversation, he up and abandons his entire family in the middle of the night. He doesn't say goodbye to anyone, not even his kids. Elsa looks everywhere for him, and she eventually tracks down a letter that he left for her at the train station. It basically says, I don't want to be found. I'm gone. And that's truly heartbreaking, especially to Loretta, who looked up to him so much and thought that he was going to take her with him. So she can't fathom that he would leave without her, but that's exactly what he did. This worsens the relationship between Loretta and Elsa. It gives Loretta more ammo to use against her mom, however undeserved it is. Elsa has a bit of a mental breakdown, rightfully so, but her bond with Rose, Tony, and the kids keep her sane. And I really love how Elsa and Rose's relationship develops throughout this book, They become what the other needs, and it's so beautiful to see that bloom. The situation, though, is getting even more dire. Rain isn't coming, crops aren't surviving, and this is when the government steps in a bit. FDR comes up with his plan to cure the Dust Bowl, and I went over this in the last episode, but as a reminder, they want to pay farmers to plant grass, not crops. The idea for this is to give the land a break, ultimately restoring it. They also offer to buy any livestock for $16 a head, which most of the livestock is dying, so that's not a bad price. But for some families, it's the only way that they're getting milk. This plan is a knife in the heart for these farmers. They're being told that it's their fault, which it is, but they didn't know better. And so it's also saying, like, this is your only option. Rain isn't coming. You do this or you die. And that is a really hard pill to swallow. Elsa, Rose, and Tony resist this as long as they can. But the unrelenting dust does not bode well for them. The last of their horses die, which takes away their main form of transportation, and they are running low on food and things to trade for food. The final straw is when Ant becomes very sick. He gets diagnosed with dust pneumonia, a very common ailment from the Dust Bowl. Everything in his little body was filled with dirt and dust. His stomach, his lungs, everything, causing him to lose his ability to breathe. He is saved by the Red Cross, but in order to fully heal, they have to leave. They make a plan to head for California, all of them, and right before they leave, Rose and Tony tell Elsa they're staying. They are staying and they are going to try their hardest to save this land and work with the government to do so. Elsa and Rose have the most touching goodbye. The love they feel for each other and the respect, I think is what Elsa was always looking for. And Rose truly has become a mother to her. And that makes me so happy. Because at the end of the day, what Elsa really wanted was someone to love her. Rafi didn't. And then she had her kids, and she feels this wedge with Loretta. 
know, Aunt does love her, but I think that this bond with Rose is just so deeply meaningful to her, and I'm so happy that she has it. But now it's just Elsa and her two kids on an adventure to California, and that is where I'm going to leave you guys for part one. In part two, we are going to pick up in 1935, and we are going to follow Elsa and the kids on the journey to California and the life they get once they live there. We're also going to wrap up what becomes of these amazing characters, and I hope you guys fall in love with them as much as I already am. I feel like I can really relate to Elsa, but I also really feel like I can relate to Loretta. I know that she's only 12, and I'm 33, but I remember what it was like at that age. You're kind of in this place where, like, you understand parts of the world, but you don't understand the world. You're starting to become, like, a real person, but you're not quite there yet because you're still a child. Growing up and what she's growing up has to be a thousand times more difficult for her to navigate. Especially when she has a father like Rafi who's putting all this shit into her head that doesn't need to be there. So I'm really excited to see how they kind of develop throughout the rest of this book. And I'm really hoping that in the end, Elsa and Loretta can kind of repair this relationship wedge that they have right now and truly become like the mother-daughter baddest team that I know that they can be. And yeah, that's it for part one. Thank you again, everybody, for tuning in. Make sure you do check out Read Between the Wines pod on Instagram. Again, that's where I have all the pictures. I have the wine up there. I have the book up there. Um, And then I also do have some content that revolves around the Dust Bowl. So make sure to check us out. Also, you can leave comments on the posts for the four wins to ask me any questions that you have about this book, about the wine, so that I can go through those and answer those in the Q&A. Part two is dropping next week, so I will talk to you guys then. Mm-hmm.